You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Dissident Island is an anarchist radio show broadcasting on the first and third Friday of every month from the London Action Resource Center. Since 2007, Dissident Island has covered anarchist life in London, including the rise and fall of squatted social centres. So my name's Patrick Evans. I'm 32 years old from London. I mainly grew up in North London. When I was 18, I started squatting and moved to South London area called Peckham. Yeah, over the course of the following 10 years, I lived in several different squatted places, mainly in South and East London. Patrick was one of the creators of Dissident Island. You're about to hear excerpts from our interview with him, as well as clips from the show. When I was still at school, actually, there was a social centre called Grand Banks, which opened up across the road from from our school. It was a place uh, set up by a group called the Wombles, who were particularly active in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Yeah, this particular space, it used to be a bank. It's quite in quite a prominent position on a high street. It was one of the last spaces that the Wombles kind of did in their lifespan. From that point onwards, I just got heavily involved, really, in, in the underground scene in London to the point where I pretty much just spent all my time in in squatted places. I am sitting opposite Ravensate Island in Kingston, but recently evicted eco site, which was uh, evicted two days ago on May the 1st. Uh, I'm here with uh, Phoenix, who's one of the uh, founder members and uh, uh, he's going to explain a little bit about uh, the intentions of the project. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice has been a couple of days of heavy eviction ranting. Um, we occupied the island out of urgent action needed on our critical environmental situation. Uh, we occupied it squatted it about nine weeks ago, uh, intending to set up a community environmental centre, a space where a lot of different people could use and enjoy it. Um, it's a piece of common land and public space that should be enjoyed by all. The Kingston Council is trying to privatise and sell off to private developers, possibly for a hotel or for flats. Um, for nine weeks we ran eco-cinema, talks, workshops, discussions, debates, meetings, music, theatre, performances, all different sorts of stuff. One thing I would say broadly is that the diversity of people in London is not always reflected among the squatting communities. Um, Rather, it tends to be a handful of demographics, such as artists or musicians, travellers, political activists or politically minded youngsters wanting to live in an alternative way. Tell us about yourself and your involvement in the Social Centre Plus. Tell us um, well, we started occupying from the 12th or 13th of March, I think. And um, it's really amazing. We've got a whole variety of groups involved. We've got Trotskyists, we've got anarchists, we've got middle-aged activists, we've got radical students, we've got mothers from the neighbourhood involved, and um, we've got a whole we've got a re- we've got a real community going on at the moment. So um, we're bringing in all these different groups, and um, yeah, we're hosting events, we're hosting film nights, we're hosting um, on Wednesdays. We've got our open cuff. We can come along for free food and coffee and tea. Yeah, we're hoping to stay for as long as possible and open the centre to the community. Are you receiving much uh, community support? It's been really, really amazing. It's been really gratifying. Um, I've always 
I've not always been the, the biggest fan of outreach when it goes to sort of political stuff and that, but um, just talking to the people outside the community centre and people just like, what you're doing is good, we support it, and very, very little negative comments. And I think um, what this shows is, 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 is you know, the, op- the, the widespread opposition to, to the government's policies and, and politics across the board, especially in Lucian and Deptford, where we've got a very, you know, we've got a lot of ethnic minorities, we've got a lot of poor neighbourhoods around there, and um, they're really feeling the cuts and be- they're behind us. I'm one of the issues like obviously there's the housing crisis and all the rest of it that you're talking about but yeah. one of the issues you're talking about quite a bit is homelessness and you've invited homeless folk in indeed to well, with you. i think there's an extra 16 percent of like street rough people this year you've only got to walk around the streets to see it physically yourself and so we've got roughly about 25 sort of 30 people regularly sort of staying in the building there's ample room for that you know and we're running some events around it providing them food shelter and what they need and i think it's, it's going really well to be fair but with the homeless people, like they just come and knock on your door and say, "Do you have somewhere to skip?" Or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much like that. Yeah, it's just sort of liaising with groups like Street Kitchen, and they've anyone they think there's going to be a reasonable person to live with, being directed to us. Your very transparent uh, presence on the island with a local community, uh, you do that the same again, even though perhaps leaving yourself open for. Um, uh, police undercover and intelligence within the uh, uh, campaign? Well, on all these campaigns, I mean, the thing is, there's always, like, you know, uh, when you've got road protests, mm. anybody can come sit by the fire, chat, chat, have a cup of tea, have a drink, whatever. Um, you know, we're running a community centre, yeah. and we said, up for guests and friends to come and visit. Officially, you're not allowed to say you're open to the public, there's health and safety things on it, but anyone who came was a guest and friend who ended their own responsibility and risk and stuff. But, you know, we had, someone said, you know, we had a couple of undercover police come through a couple of weeks ago, check everything out, you know. But basically, yeah, we had we had an open door a lot of the time. You know, we had to ferry them across on the river, so we had a little bit of, you know, control over the door gateway, but, you know, we didn't let anyone on if they seemed a little bit too, whatever, drunk Larry or whatever, you know. But basically, um... We were open to a lot of people. We like to be open people. We like to be welcoming. At this time, there were a number of bits of land occupied around around Whitechapel in East London uh, of like a anarchist political activist community. It, actually, historically, there is a, that is kind of the geographic centre. There's an anarchist kind of area with a history in London. It is around there and around Whitechapel. So um, dating back to the 1930s and, and earlier even. There was a place called Rampart, which is where Distant Island started. Distant Island started in 2007. Yeah, that space rampart. Uh, I didn't join until 2012. Actually, I became part of the collective. Then, then just began to more regularly help, like assemble the output of two shows a month. Rampart actually got evicted during the G20 in London, but it got reopened in a quite miraculous way because someone I think hid in the building while this was all going on and just waited. Hi, I'm here with Ben, and we're sitting in the new Rampart 2.2. And so what's going on here? Uh, Why have you opened this new space? Um, Well, we've opened this as our second backup venue to the Rampart, which we expect to be evicted anytime soon when they get round to it. Um, It's a much more central location, and um, we chose the building... Uh, it's a very similar size to the rampart, and uh, the location's great, but it's uh, in quite a state. But we decided to go for it anyway as a kind of example of what you can do uh, with a building that's been left in disrepair. Uh, the owners had stripped out 
the all the stairs, uh, most of the pipes. Uh, they've smashed a lot of the windows. They've um, smashed a hole in the roof. Uh, pulled up a lot of the floorboards. So yeah, basically it was pretty gutted. And then this eventual eviction was was something else. Um, basically, typically what would happen with eviction processes in squats is that you initially have a date, you know, you have one date where you can actually prepare for it and it's relatively achievable to, um, to actually resist the first time if you've able to organize, you know, but it's just subsequently from that point, it's pretty difficult to know how to deal with it because they're going to come randomly at, at any given time. It's going to be months later, just on a random morning. And this is what happened in this case. So, they arrived at 5 a.m., I believe, with just a massive, massive police presence. There was about three people in the building. You were you were at inside Rampart when the massive number of riot cops and police uh, descended upon the building. Can you give us your sort of um, take on the whole situation? What was it like to be inside? What happened from your vantage point? Well, pretty much the first I knew about it was... Uh, Getting woken up by what I thought was kids, like, shouting outside. Um, like, because there's usually, you know, there's, like, some of the, the local youth just, like, you know, smoking in the building. And I noticed there were four, there were four police, like, just staring at the top of the building. And I was like, what's going on? So I looked out my window just to see, like, two legs just go over the top of uh, the lip of the roof like onto rampart so i was like shit like just like, gotta see what's going on like this is serious um started downstairs to see like you know if they breached like the front door and there was just like loads of smoke like loads of noise like just like could hear like loads of people just like you know you know if they're in a group like that you just hear whatever voices there is loads of smoke what was the smoke from the smoke, the smoke, yeah, the smoke was from the chainsaw that was cutting through the front oh, door. Wow. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. This show now broadcast from London Action Resource Centre, which is also in Whitechapel. London Action Resource Centre basically uh, is a space where activist groups meet and organise from. About 20 years ago, there was felt to be a need for a stable place where squatted spaces would be continually subject to people having to move on and keep shifting around London. There was the opportunity to set up a stable place and, and, and that's where it came from. Welcome back. Um, with us in the studio, we have Paul from the Autonomous Nation of Anarchist Libertarians, also known as Anal. How's it going, Paul? Uh, well, good evening. Anal has hit the headlines in a big way over the last couple of weeks. You've squatted two very high-profile buildings in Belgravia and made no secrets about it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the deal? How come you're so kind of in your face? You, like, I thought squatters these days were all hiding in the shadows and trying as hard as possible not to be noticed. The nature... Of squatting has changed, meaning that people have to be more subtle about it today and less visible, less able to be overtly political about it. Yeah, the numbers of people who are squatting in London has diminished a lot gradually over the last decades. I think it was said to be about 20,000 in the year 2010. And I'm not going to speculate what the number would be now, but I'm sure it's a lot less than that. 
yeah, there has been a shift over the last years, like largely owing to the law change in 2012. The government made it illegal to re- live in a residential, a, a building that's classified as residential and be squatting there, but you can still, you can still live in a building that's commercial. This is part of a, a longer trend of sort of chipping away at, at basically squatters' rights from early on. But this was quite a significant moment and it just came as the Olympics arrived in London. It was like literally at the same time that bill went through. And the messed up thing about it was that it disadvantaged the most disadvantaged people who were inclined to squat as a means of housing rather than, let's say, people like who might think it's a nice idea to live in a warehouse because it's trendy, I don't know, or because it's a lifestyle choice. I'm very grateful to have discovered that area of culture when I was when I was just getting into making music really and and actually it kind of gave me the means to sustain doing that for for years. I think it's quite uh, it fits quite well, you know, to for like musicians and artists to that way of life really because um in a city like London it's it's not really it's pretty difficult unless unless you're from a wealthy background basically to to sustain doing creative stuff like that, you know, just, have, you know, to have the opportunity not to have to work every minute of the day to survive. Maybe we should just explain exactly what the project is. It's basically a project that's leading up to an exhibition that's going to happen in September. Who knows where and when exactly? It's going to happen in September. The date is yet to be confirmed because it's, you know, relies on us squatting a building to hold it in because doing a project about squatting in a non-squatted space would be weird there will be a building in london that's going to be squatted and we've basically kind of put out a brief to artists or people that make art or people that want to make art i think those definitions are a bit strange myself but i mean well got... art, art is pretty pretty yeah. open okay but you don't have to be an artist you know what i mean so with, with the intention of putting a good light to squatting where there is a negative stereotype in there yeah, yeah but also avoiding that good bad squatter dichotomy yeah. that is always pushed to the media like mm-hmm. you know these guys were right because they're good squatters and these guys look at these guys and it's just mm-hmm. generally quite racist and quite kind of you know there's just like a really bad thing going on in the media at the moment mm-hmm. so kind of trying to combat that mm-hmm. yeah like one of the inspirations for this project came from Holland when they were criminalising it in Holland and they put up big banners everywhere in the city and really visible in the city um, about the criminalisation. And I guess it's just about like that part, this part of um, doing stuff in high street shops is more about being like visible, a visible presence outside our own networks um, and mm. trying to get you know joe public to like who've probably never even thought about squatting and if all he's all he's seen about squatting yeah. is in the evening standard to sort of think a bit more widely about the mm-hmm. implications of, and what we might lose if it is fully criminalized what's happened is that the um the notion of property and the role that it plays in the economy of this city has just become more and more strong if you happen to be a londoner who had a property in 1980 1990, it was going to have doubled in value. 2000 doubled again. 2010 doubled again. Yeah, it has meant that like people that were just were living in London, all of a sudden they just become rich from living there, really. But there's also this process of, of displacement, and which squatters are subject to, but also lower income families or, or demographics. I feel like the conjunction of while Boris Johnson was mayor of London and there was a Tory government, so that's between 
2010 and 2016. There was this process people refer to as social cleansing. It's quite subtle, but basically people, you know, that could have survived really in inner city or did survive for generations in inner city London no longer could because of the economics of the situation. Areas that are now very affluent in London, like Notting Hill or Camden Town, these would have been full of squatted places, you know, literally streets, like whole blocks of terraced housing that were squatted. From the 1960s, 70s onwards, there's lots of people that ended up like in possession of properties having initially squatted there, or they've managed to make like um, housing co-ops or housing associations. Culturally, it is pretty built into the city, actually. For me, part of the project is expanding that definition of culture to encompass like personal stories as well as the kind of more visible impacts that squatting's had because initially we were talking about those kind of things like places like the Pullins Estate, Crossroads Women's Centre, Islington Housing Co-op, the 491 Gallery, these kind of like long-running, kind of quite well-known examples of, you know, impacts that squatting's had on the city, which is great. But since we started the project, the submissions we've had, which was for people who want to create work, have been largely, I think, kind of more personal stories, which has been really beautiful. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. All the audio from Dissonant Island was compiled by Patrick, and it was included in last summer's exhibition at the Archive, called Resistance Radio, The People's Airwaves. To hear unedited versions of all the Dissident Island interviews used in this episode, as well as a few others, visit socialcentersLondon.wixsite.com slash interferencearchive. And for more on the history of squatting in London, listen to episode 20 of this podcast. Thank you to Patrick Evans and everyone at Dissident Island for their contributions to this episode. Check out the links and information in the show notes. And from all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. So you've moved from a £15 million house to a £25 million house. Indeed, yeah. Uh, what's next? Well, you can only go up. <laughs> I mean, the Queen has loads of places she only Would lives you? in part of the year. <laughs>